Hey everybody, welcome to Applying to Everything, a show about our passions, the world, and where they overlap. I'm your host, Bruno Falcon. This week's guest is Zach Rothman, a web developer bassist for Humble Fire, who's playing the song you can hear right now, and one of my oldest friends. We talked about the future of musical history, interacting with art and tech, and Zach's first bass. Enjoy. So you just finished up a tour. <laughs> yeah. With your band, Humble Fire, who is the band that plays the theme song for the show. And you guys have been, you just dropped your second, you're dropping, have dropped your second album? Sec, uh, it's coming. We just dropped the second single off that album, uh-huh. Fine Line. Yeah. And uh, the album's called Builder, and it's coming out sometime at the end of July. I don't remember the day right now, which is... Okay, probably bad, but it's it's around the time the show's gonna. This episode's probably gonna drop, so we'll we'll make sure that it gets a plug. Sweet. How was it like touring? I know you like touring is a is a big, especially at at your stage. Touring sort of takes you out of out of the space. You have a life and a structure here in DC, and going on tour, even if it's just for a few days, is like okay, cool. I'm setting all of that aside for a week, and let's go let's go play music. So, how how was that this time around? And what's tell tell me a little bit about what that's like. Well, this is. This was really like the first time this particular group of people has gone out of town together, really. I think it's probably different for different bands. We're all, you know, employed full-time, so it's pretty challenging for us to get the the logistics in order for us all to, you know, be off our square jobs uh, at the same time. And, like, so we were only out for a few days. But even so, the, the like, context change is definitely pretty effective and you know we in our sort of fantasies we're like we're gonna go all up and down the eastern seaboard we're gonna hit philadelphia and new york and we're gonna like play all these like big markets you know Mm -hmm. and uh what we ended up doing is uh our guitarist dave epley knows has a friend that he met through the mount pleasant farmer's market and uh she comes down from harrisburg pennsylvania to work at this farmer's market and she's also active in the tiny but tight-knit Harrisburg, Pennsylvania music scene. <laughs> so she booked a couple shows for us, one in Harrisburg at a pretty DIY situation. It happened in a bike shop, nice. which was pretty chill, with Mira, who's a fairly well-known sort of indie pop folk artist. Uh, she's done a lot of collaborations with other groups like The Blow or like Tao from Town, The Get Down, Stay Down. And that just sort of came together out of nowhere, which was pretty cool. And then we played on Friday night, we played in Gettysburg at this place called Waldo's and Company, which is a like a artist collective shared workspace slash coffee shop slash performance venue, mm-hmm. which was also really great. And, you know, there's it was awesome to see that there's these little communities. Presumably there's one in every town, right? There's right. a group of you know, a handful, handful of dozen of people who are like, let's do the weird stuff mm-hmm. in, in our town and make sure that the weird stuff is happening. <laughs> and uh, so that's really exciting to like see and be a part of. And honestly, it was really refreshing to be in situations where people are just there to like appreciate it. You know, there's, I think that, you know, we've been trying to do this particular release kind of professionally scare quotes uh, you know, we hired a publicist and all this stuff, and 
and that's cool and it's exciting to you know get some certain kinds of you know more prominent attention or like media attention or whatever but it's nowhere near as good as actually being in front of an audience that is appreciating what you're playing in the moment and on the flip side it's a lot of pressure and a lot of like both external and internal pressure lots of hopes and expectations and everything and so it's really nice to like just get down to the reality of like we're gonna go to a place and play the music for some other humans who want to hear it Mm -hmm. like and to me like we're talking about passion like that's the best part yeah right is like making that connection and making uh you know for that brief whatever half an hour when you're playing like creating a little world that you can all co cohabitate in yeah so so that's cool and like being on tour is cool you know it's not something i get to do very often i think the last time i was really on tour was like 2014 yeah um with the band paper house and i was just sitting in for a couple weeks and and they're great guys and they're a pretty cool band and but it's another thing going out with like my Your soul family you yeah. know like my 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 people who We've been through a ton together. I mean, this album that we're promoting now, we started recording in winter 2015, and some mm-hmm. of the songs go back to, like, 2013. So, like, the gratification of finally bringing this to other places um, and seeing its effect mm-hmm. just in, you know, various rooms and block parties. We played a block party in Baltimore. Is is pretty awesome. Nice. That's a, that's really exciting. And and I know you guys have been working... You've been working on the album for... You've been working on the album for two years, at, like more or less like in terms of putting it down like some of the songs longer but like in terms of like putting it together and writing and then actually starting to record and produce like that's been going on yeah the recording process started winter 2015 and we were basically i mean we had masters as of october last year but then it's all just the logistics of planning the release and Mm -hmm. getting sort of a team together which team really just consists of a couple people and producing the video very excellent uh, team to produce the music video for our first single, Taliesin, which went really well. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Bruno, Bruno did that. Um, <laughs> um, with, uh, with, I think we're now calling ourselves otherwise productions is the, is yes. The, awesome. Yeah. The Sadie, the, that, the Sadie's Sadie been Lay. looking for a thing for that name. Yeah. For a while. Yeah. So that's, I remember. that's pretty cool. So I remember, like it's uh, it's inter- it's fascinating to me, fascinating and not entirely surprising that uh, creating that space and sort of creating that shared world is a part of what drives making making those shows worthwhile and and really helps to keep the energy of the tour up, um, and and is a part of the process. Just because I um, I remember back, I remember being there when you got your first base. Um, that, oh, yeah, that thing. You were actually I present was for that. Present for you getting your first base, that that silly shotgun shaped thing, and that became so much of a like through through those early years. That became a really powerful tool for like engaging with a lot of the other people around who were also into in like creating this early community of music and like creating this all of these different spaces early on around music. And I'm curious about how much that's been a part of that community structure. Like I know, I know a little bit about that, but could like how much has music been part of creating that space? Well, yeah. I mean, music definitely has this like dual character, right? On one hand, it's so abstract. It's so transient, Mm -hmm. right. And, and, and sort of structural and, and formal in a way, right. The actual aesthetic qualities of music are like, again, like formal qualities of just like, it's 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 just pure form, right? Like music is this 
art form that's just the pure form. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't factor in like the semiotics or semantics of, of lyrics or or reference or mm-hmm. which you can and should and, mm-hmm. and you know there's whole genres of music that are about that like like mashup mashups right like girl talk or whatever you know which i think that like mashups are funny because they were super cool for like a couple years there mm-hmm. and and then it just became that like everything is a mashup yeah or it was like one of those technological things like i don't know a whole lot about making them but i th- i feel like that at some point at some point like consumer like garage band advanced far enough that it was easy for people to make a mashup and then suddenly there were a billion mashups in the world mm-hmm. anyway mashups that's not where i was trying to go but <laughs> so okay so there's one side there's this like super abstract formal version of music and then on the other side there's this like almost tribal role it plays right uh in terms of like defining cultures and subcultures and defining identity and allegiance and and things like that and like your proclaimed music taste is just as much about like, I think what groups you want to be a part of or, or make known that you're not a part of as much as like your own pure aesthetic enjoyment. And really for the most part, I feel like it's more about community and, and identity than aesthetics because all music has something to offer, right? Mm -hmm. Like all sounds have something some quality that you can experience. Right. That's not to say all music is equally good or whatever, right? Like, well, I don't know. I want to backtrack some of that too because the cultural aspect of music is a huge part of it too, right? When I first bought that first bass, that was something that the guy at Atomic Music said to me. He was like, uh, he, I think he'd asked how old I was or something and I just turned 14 and I was just about to start high school. And he was like, oh, that's great. Like everyone in high school needs their thing. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and that's what I'm talking about. Like, it's not like, oh, you're going to create such amazing music with this or like, like this bass is especially well suited for your, your art form or whatever. It's like, oh, like now you get to have an identity, mm-hmm. right? And there's definitely ways in which that was a prophetic or possibly like self-fulfilling prophecy and that, yeah, a lot of my relationships began to center around music and mm-hmm. music was a huge a lot of the like content of relationships, right? Like, you know, whether it was in the course of forming bands or, mm-hmm. you know, collaborating with people or just sharing in new music discoveries among friends that that's still some of my closest friendships now today still like that's the core, that's the meat of it. Mm-hmm. Or like that's the easy end to any conversations like, oh, what are you listening to now? Or like check out this new cool song. Or arguments about whether or not the Mars Volta is is a really great brand band still i mean a really great band still well they're not a band anymore well is it okay but or conversations about how the mars volta still holds up are really their first well. four albums masterpieces <laughs> yes and they and i mean you start to lose me you start to lose me after um francis the yeah yeah well like, you have but, to you have to you have to want I know. I've been thinking about this, right? I just said, I just mentioned right before we were recording, like I was I was listening to Coheed and Cambria, which mm-hmm, is another mm-hmm. like elaborate, emo influenced, um, super ambitious, fucking nerd rock, right? Yeah. Like nerd sci-fi rock. <laughs> As I was like, I was listening to Coheed and Cambria in the car yesterday, and I was talking to the drummer Humble Fire Jason, and I was saying like, is this kind of music being made anymore? Like, what happened? 
to this kind of music. And now, okay, Coheed and Cambria is, or they're still doing stuff. Mm -hmm. But I was just thinking about like the cultural role of that. Again, like the, the sort of currency or relevance of like high concept screamo. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, and just sort of think, just, you know, like there was a time when I feel like, like the Mars Volta, for example, or like there, like for me, it was like the Mars Volta brand new Thursday, mm-hmm. Coed and Cambria mm-hmm. are at the drive-in, like this sort of like heavy, but still melodic. Like that was like a sweet spot of like, and like people who were in charge of saying what was cool or not, like said that stuff was cool. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, going back to the like tribe forming or like sure. um, identity forming aspects of music and and now it's not true now guitars are dead like guitars are not cool and like if you read a pitchfork review of uh, a rock band like it's they must have like a contract or something you have to sign that says like i'm gonna write a review of a rock band but somewhere in there i'm gonna say that i know rock and roll is dead but these guys figured out a cool thing to do with guitars nonetheless and and Yeah, that kind of thing. It's like, again, it's like more, to me, it seems like more about positioning yourself, positioning oneself in relationship to various like cultural movements as opposed Mm -hmm. to a direct aesthetic engagement, right? And like, and that's okay. And like, and and, and music does evolve, right? And Mm -hmm. And music evolves in reference to each other. I mean, like, you know, I think there there was this whole phase of like the new Dirty Projectors album, which mm-hmm. is like this solo thing, and it's like super electronic and kind of chopped and and abstract mm-hmm. in that way. And like the last Bon Iver record, mm-hmm. and like these are both bands that like when they started, that like Bon Iver is like like I'm a lonely man in a cabin in the woods with a guitar, right? Or like Dirty Projectors was so like naturalistic mm-hmm. and you know straightforward, just like like very interesting intricate guitar work and and vocal melodies and stuff but still very like naturalistic Mm -hmm. and like everyone's like we can't do that anymore like we can't we can't uh we're not people yelling into the void we're ghosts in the machine yelling into the sure yeah right and yeah maybe right maybe it's a grappling with like the decontextualization of like everything that is wrought by network culture by the Mm -hmm. internet social media and just like and just like the absurd pace of like modern existence where like every 90 seconds there's another like terrorist attack or like mm-hmm. or political hack- scandal or political or scandal or, or hacking yeah. outbreak or or Ebola or <laughs> or police shooting or something's yeah. always yeah, yeah, fucking yeah. happening yeah that is crazy and like unsettling yeah. right and so i think that gets reflected like that gets reflected in music but at the same time like nothing ever dies, right? Like we still have violins. Sure. We still have goatskin drums. Like there's no Those instruments don't go away. They just get used either either And they get layered on mm-hmm. so much cultural baggage, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. the sound of a djembe now has so many layers of of reference, yeah. right? And violin the same thing, right? Like you just think of those sounds and they evoke certain times and places and personalities. Mm-hmm. And like the guitar is one is 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 interesting because it is a it's a baby instrument. It's been around for electric guitar, right? It's been around for seventy years, mm-hmm. sixty years. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, like 
everything that any any new thing that someone did with a guitar was like the first thing that's ever happened to a guitar amazing right, right? like so cool um <laughs> and now it's i mean it, we're transitioning into a space where utilizing syn- synthetic audio and not even synths but like layering in natural like li- like auto-tune was a thing but then immediately people are like wait we don't just have to do this with voices and it doesn't have to sound good we can do a whole different right, track right. or and, and so that technology is evolving so fast now do you think that a part of the reason that music like that there aren't those deep wells of like influence because I, I think they still exist but that you know you don't have as much bucketing in 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 terms of like the types of music people listen to is because the pool got wider and started spilling over because like i think when i think about what cool music is in the mainstream it kind of runs the gambit uh they can talk about like sort of k-pop and kendrick lamar and and toby keith all in the same breath in terms of being major influencers of 2016 and 2015 like that those things you know those things are now part of the broader zeitgeist because we all have access to them that 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 is sort of making it harder for those deep pools to to sort of stay isolated and also that with with that in congress with the speed at which the technology of producing new sounds is advancing more and more artists who want to be on the cutting edge of a thing like the cutting edge of music, let alone any particular style, feel the need to like fall all the way into the digital production in a way that ex- would would help to explain like Bonnie Iver's evolution over the last six years, and and the same you know roughly the same timeline for the Dirty Projectors. The there's obviously like a huge diversity of stuff you can get your hands on, right? Like mm-hmm. Spotify has every song ever. They don't have Tool, though. They don't have Tool. Or King Crimson. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, like, they're, they're still holdouts. Although I think Tool is coming. Yeah. I, I read a... Well, when their new album releases, yeah. that's how they're... How, how else do you get exposure on new stuff anymore? From from Spotify? Like, yeah. how, how do you get no, exposure like, like, yeah. stuff besides Spotify? Yeah. I mean, like, not not to not to people who stay, like, caught up on Pitchfork or, or, or follow the band directly, but in terms of, like, how do you push that content to, to new listenership without... Because Spotify... Yeah, I mean, that's it. So I mean, ubiquitous. you know, in, in, in figuring out how to promote this new record, again, I don't know. Like, I just... I'm inside this project, and mm-hmm. all I know is, like, how we're doing it. And, like, to me, it seems, like, very strange... Uh, to just like give this job to one person, mm-hmm. he like gets these tracks premiered on blogs in random places, and yep. like they show up on radio playlists and stuff. But it's definitely come up that like a huge percentage of people discover their new music via like their Discover Weekly playlist on mm-hmm. on Spotify or yeah. just like radio or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I uh, I kind of lost track of the question, um, but I think I mean in terms of influences or in terms of like having diverse influences or like or decontextualized influences i mean what i was sort of alluding to earlier is like hip-hop as a genre as a as an art form and like disclaimer i am not a hip-hop expert by any means Mm -hmm. but as far as i understand the just the fact of it being this almost like found sound right sampling and recontextualizing of like existing material Mm -hmm. and 
that it's almost that it's this way to uh, come to terms with the like the intensity of stimulation of like of city life, for example. Mm-hmm. And now, and now I think people are living in this like digital metropolis, right? That like everybody, you know, or two thirds of the world or whatever. I don't remember what the like the actual. Yeah. There's a gap, and you have to find some way to like make sense of all of it. Yeah, I don't know. The thing I wanted to say about Dirty Projectors and, and Bony Bear, though, as an example, is like, to me, I trace it straight back to Yeezus, right? Mm-hmm. To 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 Kanye West and like his vision and the fact that like Justin Vernon mm-hmm. collaborated with Kanye West on My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Yeah. And then, this is my theory, right? That Justin Vernon got a taste of a whole different approach to music. This like, not this like naturalistic... St- hiding in a cabin in the woods thing, but like in the middle of friggin' everything, mm-hmm. right? Just, just devouring mm-hmm. cultural references mm-hmm. and source material from everywhere and mm-hmm. putting it together, right? Which is what Kanye West does. Mm-hmm. And then Kanye West like came, went from my beautiful dark twist fantasy, this like lush, elaborate, you know, colorful, opus or whatever you want to call it to Yeezus was just like so stark and noisy and like harsh Mm -hmm. and everyone just was like oh that's what we're doing now (laughs) sweet (laughs) yeah right so like yeah I just think that's I just I just feel like I watched that happen in like real time Mm -hmm. and it was very transparent to me I could be wrong yeah but uh but the thing is like about the cultural Mm -hmm. the like community building side of it Mm -hmm. Like those three records, right? Yeezus, 22 a million, subtitled Dirty Projectors. Like, I didn't even really identify with those records in particular, right? I watched them happen as like almost like the, the canon forming in real time, right? Sure. Um, but like, when Bony Bear came out last year, right? Yeah. Like, that wasn't, mid-year, that mid-year wasn't an year. important record to me last year. And like, Yeezus wasn't an important to me record to me the year it came out. So, like, on one hand, you have this sort of like mainstream or just sort of ambient mm-hmm. culture evolving mm-hmm. in its own way. And at the same time, there's like my own internal climate, mm-hmm. which is like for the last few years, I've just been into like fizzy synth pop with like sure. very emotive female vocalists. Is like mm-hmm. That's like where I live now, and I don't know how I ended up there in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not exactly the kind of music that I make either, you know. But there's like some reason that's meaningful to me. It doesn't have anything to do with like the sort of objective, like what music is good now, or what music is supposed to be like now, or like right. where where music is headed. Well, I mean, so I don't know. Well, because some of that I think probably goes uh, probably goes back to access to like access to the volume of information that we have like you an album comes out and not only like if it has a certain amount of if it have a, has a certain amount of buzz behind it you're going to hear about it it'll pop up it'll pop up on it'll pop up on NPR or somewhere in the post or in the times or wherever you wherever you get like Vox will do an article about whatever new album is is currently trending right now and if you're listening to Spotify it'll pop up there too so it seems like a lot of people are trying to define that, like the contemporary music canon, like what that is supposed to be. And that, that in, in expanding the world that has kind of 
the big the the big the capital C canon of like the twenty aughts ends up being smaller because you don't have as you you have one capital C canon as opposed to like the the like the canon of rock and roll and punk and emo like you you had this you had these structural canons for these different genres and those genres right now that now that everybody is everything yeah there can be one list exactly of here's everything and here's the top of it but yeah two things yeah one i remember reading an article i can't remember this where this was but there's an article i came across someone was like in a hundred years who's going to be remembered? Like, what is rock and roll going to sound like to people in a hundred years? Mm-hmm. Like, right. Like who is the Mozart of rock and roll or who's like the Bach of rock and roll? Like who's that one you think of like classical music and there's like three names you remember, right? Unless you study and then there's a ton of names. Like, yeah. you, like there's plenty of classical composers that sort of lived, lived on. But so, so that's like, is anyone going to remember 22 a million forever i don't know this this particular writer was like it's bob dylan which again like Mm. i don't really i never really Mm -hmm. got into bob dylan like bob dylan never became like the music of my heart but uh i mean i guess it's possible right like he's iconic but the other the thing or like the main thing i wanted to get to is like i think the impulse to to canonize or to find some objective understanding or like handle or like authoritativeness on what music is or is supposed to be or what music's good to me it just it all just like reeks of capitalism right it's just like it's <laughs> right. just right it's like if you have the best handle on the music then your website can get the most clicks and you can sell the most ads right mm-hmm. Well, you're told, or you can, you can, you're, you can maximize touring revenue. Like if you're, sure. if you, if you've got the next, next big pop song, you can, you can just, if, or if you know what the, what the, right. what the canon of, of contemporary music is supposed to be, you can somehow distill that down into the next big thing, like in a, in a, in a, in a, in a clean structural way. Right. Or like, yeah, yeah. And it, on the, on the critical side, right. If mm-hmm. you're, if you're pitchfork or your bob boylan or, mm-hmm. or whoever and you can trace that you can you have your finger on the pulse in a way right that makes you successful at your job which is to lead people to music that's going to be relative sorry relevant mm-hmm. to them and that people are going to like and mm-hmm. that they're going to buy and, mm-hmm. and whatever right and right there there is this one side of it that's like there is a an earnest desire to understand culture right there's an earnest desire to and I think that you'd ask any particular music critic, like, this is what they would say it's about. It's like, like, music is amazing, and people are amazing, and the things that they decide to do is just a fascinating subject, and I'm a student of that, right? I'm trying to understand the why and how culture moves and changes over time. But then there's this structure around all of that, this mm-hmm. capitalistic structure, which, like, publishers are, are bound to and which mediates what gets out there, right? Like, this is almost like the rockist versus poptimist uh, sure. argument where it's like, right, if you're, if, you're, if you're a poptimist, you believe that there's, that the music that ends up being popular, there's something about that that, that justifies its popularity, that like, that there's meaning in that and mm-hmm. that there is meaningful, authentic, 
truth embedded in that music because of its accessibility. Like the fact of its accessibility means that it has in fact tapped into something real in our culture that's important. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, I grant that, but I also see the other side or like see the, the flip side of that, which is not that like music that's made with synthesizers is boring and commercial and Mm -hmm. whatever, Mm -hmm. or, or, or lazy or whatever. So I, I recently had a, a friend over who, uh, saw a synthesizer I bought and, and they were not about the synthesizer. They were like, that's not even an instrument. Like that's a toy. Mm. And I, it was like, it's, and I was like, but it's an all analog synthesizer. Like, like it, you can never get the same sound twice. And it's like, mm-hmm. according, you know, it's, it's sensitive to its environment and stuff. And she was like, I don't know. Anyway, that's an unwinnable argument. You're uh, talking about the, so yeah, the, the capitalism. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so then, so then on the artistic side, the yeah. musical side, right. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently is like, what is, oh my God, what is art? What is creativity? Um, what motivates you to do that? Cause that's something I struggle with on my own. I mean, I've often, I feel like my, I've, I've leaned on bands as a crutch to like get me to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I haven't, I've written maybe like half a song or like three halves of a song on my own. Like, you know, I'm not particularly prolific just as myself. Well, I was this, this, it actually brings me to, uh, one of the things that, one of the things that I think we're talking around and that I've always noticed in, in both your music and in your, in your work is you have a very, you have a, you have an aesthetic and, and that aesthetic has this really solid ordered structure. What I find really cool about it is that it, that, that, that ordered structure in no way impedes the organic nature of the thing, but you have this really, when I think of how fractal geometry shows up in nature in interesting ways, like it's, it's beautiful and complicated, but you can see how it all has a way of fitting together that, that gives it this holistic appearance. And I've seen that, like I've seen that not just in the type of music you play, but also in how you play and how you present yourself when you're playing. And, and also in how, you know, how you talk about, website design or visual aesthetics or like just containing a space. So how much does that like structured aesthetic, how much of that is in like the front of your mind when you're working on things or when you're not working on things or when you're thinking about how other people make music? That's definitely near the front of my mind often, right? Like when I'm working with Humble Fire, when we're writing a song together, I'm looking for patterns. I'm looking for, correspondences i'm looking for uh structure opportunity to add structure opportunity to like reference Mm -hmm. to tie things together in a way to have parts talk to each other and yeah i think like fractal structure is definitely a good way to talk about it right like you have like everything is this like branching repetition right Mm -hmm. you've got a song and then within that song you've got these sections these verse chorus sections or whatever Mm -hmm. right and often they repeat, although, you know, there's plenty of other song structures that don't do that, but uh, they repeat. And then inside that, there's a riff or something, and mm-hmm. those repeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe there's variations each time, and so those have these, like, different branches. And then within the riff, there's individual notes, and those repeat. <laughs> and, like, the 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 notes themselves are made of oscillations, which are repeating, right? So there's this, like, there's this, like... Um, yeah, fractal structure is a good way to put it. Another thing which I always just like to think about is that harmony is rhythm just sped up really fast, um, mm-hmm. which is just 
awesome <laughs> uh, if you think about it like like a a four over six mm-hmm. beat if you speed it up it's a perfect fifth what <laughs> right like if you speed if you have a four over six rhythm mm-hmm. and you speed it up until it becomes a tone it's a perfect fifth that's freaking awesome yeah okay um <laughs> uh i think that's right i hope that's right it's about partials and harmonics and stuff but anyway um and then yeah i mean code for me writing code is this is a similar thing uh you know there's some like old cliche i can't remember the exact form of it or who said it but like uh, the best programmers are lazy programmers because like you never want to do something twice that's what the computer is there for is like mm-hmm. that's because the computer doesn't care how many times it can do things because it can do things a million times in a second and also it doesn't have consciousness or preferences um <laughs> unless you go edit preferences but um so what i'm always looking for is again opportunities to like compress complexity into simplified structures mm-hmm. so so in a way i would say like the act of writing code to like solve some problem is like you're looking for these like landmarks in the problem that afford the opportunity mm-hmm to reduce some complexity to some loop or branching structure or something. Mm -hmm. And, and you just sort of like do that a bunch of times in a bunch of different places and like crunch it all down to this one little crystal of an idea of Mm -hmm. a process. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas music to me is like the expansion of that. I can express a song structure in a sort of like compressed, um, or terse, outline or something right but Mm -hmm. the joy of it the like experience of it is the full-on real-time rendering of this Mm -hmm. pattern into transient experience right um and uh yeah that's i that's interesting because i hadn't thought about like the the efficiency the economy of efficiency aspect of coding like that, that's sort of the like good code is good code is built on efficiency, and th- that when I think about not not about the contemporary not about like contemporary pop music or what or or you know broadly consumed music, but how people rank it is based around that economy of efficiency, which is kind of in opposition to art to to producing good art in in some ways like that that it's that it's that sort of like the what we were talking about in terms of that canon and in terms of that capitalized canon is about distilling out like okay what like distilling out the perfect like the perfect structure of uh verse chorus verse and what composition what composition of band producing what verse chorus verse combination over what period of time will maximize the profitability of a song in capitalized music culture and uh and that that kind of goes against the inherent effusive expression of art, even when even when art is small or 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 sort of small and quiet, it still has the intention is to to expand outward into someone else's consciousness, which isn't in a way that not not all art, but most of the art that I find myself interacting with whether it's small and quiet or big and loud it's expanding into my psychological and emotional space to produce an effect 
that I then have to go and produce over and over and over again. Because it, it like in that experience, I then relive it and relive it and relive it to to sort of connect with it on a on a deeper level. Yeah, that's an interesting opposition because like there's nothing I hate more than having to write the same code twice. And there's no experience I love more than like discovering a song that I want to listen to 20 times in a row. <laughs> like, I like, what's the difference about that? I don't know. Um, and at the same time, right. Like one of the reasons that writing code is hard is because like, if this problem had already been solved, if, mm-hmm. if we already knew how to solve this problem, mm-hmm. that solution would exist somewhere and we could just download the library and use it. Right. Where at the same time, there's a, t- a tolerance for repetition and reference and similarity in music and in pop music in general, right? I think, I mean, I think someone, I feel like there have been studies, again, can't remember who or what or when, but people have analyzed like the chordal complexity, the harmonic complexity of pop music or like the top, the top songs of the last 50 years and like they've gotten simpler and simpler mm-hmm. or something, right? So that almost does speak to like a, a crystallization or like, um, refining mm-hmm. of like musical efficiency like we're gonna make you feel the thing as quickly as possible <laughs> um yeah and and there is a almost a sort of like capitalistic or like mass production impulse sort of embedded in that but it's almost i mean it's almost like we're the 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 flip the flip feels like whereas when you're pro, when you're building out a code the computer is the thing doing the processing work so that that process is being is being done on the computer and whereas when you're producing a piece of art i'm the processor like when when i'm when i'm taking on a piece of music i'm the thing that's processing the emotional response putting it through all of the various all of the many many um all of the many many uh filters that i've created both um historically and socially and and then cranking out an emotional experience over and over and over again. And I think this kind of points back to my, my philosophy on art. We are doing the, we as the audience do the work of art once it's been produced, like the once, once a piece is put out into the world, whether it's a song that's been finished or a painting or a film, the audience is doing the work of having the emotional experience and processing that art at that point. I mean, and, and live music is an interesting twist on this because, or, or live theater, um, because the artist is then, you know, putting the, like the artist stays involved and is still producing. But when you look at, when you look at a film or when you look at a painting, um, or a recorded song, um, that experience, the artist is done. The artist has made like in the same way, in the same way that, that you can make a piece of software that then goes right. out into the world and does the work of the thing and the, and, or goes out into the world for the process to do the work of uh, to to do the work of of whatever it is the program is built for, the artist is done in producing this work, and it's then in this in producing this work, and then it's the responsibility and and sort of the it's the the task of the audience to do the work of experiencing experiencing the art and internalizing it, and you know, and doing what and and hopefully if if the art is successful in the intention. Um, having the experience and sharing in the experience that the artist wants us to have. I think one of the interesting things about art is that it can be successful even when it fails, which is not, which is like, I think something unique to, 
the artistic experience, even if the song doesn't, even if the song or the painting doesn't do what you wanted it to do, it can still, it can still touch people. It can still cause an emotional response, whether, whether or not that's the thing you wanted it to be, it can still do it, which is a, which is kind of unique. I hadn't thought about that before. There's one other thing I wanted to say about code. Sure. Because I think that I feel like the sort of general discourse around code and like technology in general is that it's this very dry sort of pure sort of like uh rarefied uh and like antisocial thing mm-hmm. and i mean i'll be the first to admit that like people being on their phones all the time is like totally an antisocial behavior and is super annoying but the but on the other side the 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 the, the culture and the act of creating writing code Mm -hmm. and and like i'm a web developer so my code is is for thousands if not more Mm -hmm. you know many thousands of people to interact with all the time Mm -hmm. um the even the the process of creating it is so interpersonal and so embedded in a community and that's not true just in the like personal relationships in terms of like the client like relationship relationship with the client relationship with other people Mm -hmm. but going out and interacting with people in the community in the developer community who have built tools that I use mm-hmm. and also just like all those relationships are represented mm-hmm. in the structure of the code itself which is something that I find really fascinating to like try and try and um, grasp or like see the the mm-hmm. isomorphism that's happening there um, this is a thing I do remember the name of it's a, there's a man named Conway not John Conway, who created the Game of Life, which is another great nerdy uh, computer science thing that you could Google, but uh, a different Conway. Conway's Law, he says that that any software product will mirror in structure the organization that produced it. Sure. And in the case of modern web development, the structure that produced it is the whole internet. <laughs> it's the whole internet. It's right. everybody everywhere who's using websites who's mm-hmm. building libraries and stuff to create websites mm-hmm. um and as a result code is almost transient in the same way that music is that it gets it gets performed over and over again right it mm-hmm. gets performed over and over again by by a server or by some you know interpreter or whatever but that the context in which the code is being executed is inseparable from the content of the code itself, mm-hmm. right? Like a, a, a pure data structure or algorithm in like the computer science sense, like that has an existence like a, a mathematical theorem or whatever, right? It is pure. It is sort of untouchable, um, ungraspable in that way. But like any particular f- file of code, any particular like line of code is dependent on a huge number of contingencies and as a result, code code rots, right? Like mm-hmm. if you don't keep your code up to date, um, right? If you even if you have a website that's like as future proofed as possible, at some point in, in the future, browsers are going to stop supporting that one like JavaScript, you know, feature that you mm-hmm. were depending on, mm-hmm. and then your code will be broken. Mm-hmm. It will just end up broken, not because there's something wrong with it, but just because the world changed around it. Um, and I think that's something really interesting that that i think the like 
lay public doesn't necessarily understand is that like sure. code is alive and it needs to be kept alive mm-hmm. um, or else it falls apart. It's interesting because that, that I, I, that then means that code also has this unique capacity to be experienced across a whole bunch of different cultural boundaries in a whole bunch of different ways, because you know, there's, there's the extent to which you can interact with a piece of software uh, on the level of its code, like on the level of the languages used to construct the software that is more ubiquitous and and sort of exists across across more spaces, not all spaces, but more spaces than the baseline user experience. But that even even that baseline user experience is then informed by your 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 understanding and experience of the underlying structure. So I mean I'm I'm I, 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 this is a little bit forced. I'll own, but it's it it just made me think of the way people experience music, especially live music, like the that every like uh, that music can evoke something in anyone but that when you watch like if you if you have a trained eye and you watch someone perform something exceptionally well like if you if you know what you're looking for you can see it and it's 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 a whole different thing than someone who might you know be good and be able to do the thing that to anyone else sounds pretty much the same um i don't know why i don't know why i thought of that well, I mean, the the way <clears throat> the way I feel like it comes together is that code, right? Earlier, I was talking about how code has embedded in it the structure of the community that created it, mm-hmm. it, created it. But because of the way we're all connected now via the internet and all these different social networks and everything, mm-hmm. right? Our sociality is structured by code as well now, right? Yeah, like. Like everyone in their interpersonal relationships has a rough understanding, a, a practical understanding of what a friend is, right? Like, what does it mean to be someone's friend? But Facebook has a technical definition of what a friend is, right? right. They, a friend is someone that appears in your friends list and they can see your posts and they can invite you to events and, I think a lot of the problems that people run into in using web technologies in, in particular, but all really all technologies is these like these sort of like leaky metaphors mm-hmm. like friend or even like window <laughs> or folder that, that are just an approximation or like an easy shorthand for a complex technical mm-hmm. interaction mm-hmm. That is totally, it doesn't have to be intuitive at all. Right. Right. And that goes back to that, right. And this kind of circle back around that software defines how we hear new music now. Right. Like, yeah, so sure. it used to be like not even that long ago. Like I found new music through my friends that, that, that my music taste was not right. Not just an appreciation of particular sounds, mm-hmm. but a particular of particular sounds that were available in my special own personal environment of people and like sources and stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and now we're kind of all plugged into the same fire hose, mm-hmm. which is just, it's just different. Right. It's um, and that's a result of the structure of some code somewhere, mm-hmm. which is just funny to think about. Um, and the same thing is true of, you know, think about the way that that Uber changes your experience of a city, for example, right? Yeah. Of a particular city. 
or the way that uh yelp changed food right yelp changed food or or that right facebook changed news (laughs) right social media changed news which is so weird which uh now we're edging close to a topic i i don't know if i want to get into that let's not go there but uh, um i i was gonna say that i i just got my music through you that was always the easiest way for me to for me to figure out what was hot um and I still, honestly, I still do. Like mostly, like I, I, I have my little musical bubble that I like float around in. And what, like the last time I listened to a new album all the way through, it was because you were like, "Hey, you should, you should check this out." I just remembered something I was thinking about earlier, which is like, oh yeah, way back to capitalism and the and the impulse to to understand sure. or like to feel like you have an an authoritative vision of an objective like musical. Mm-hmm. truth mm-hmm. right again just makes me think of like right because what you just said reminded me like that you knew what was hot right like why would anyone want to know that mm-hmm. why would you want to know what was hot mm-hmm. like isn't it enough for music to just be good mm-hmm. and to me that again that's like a, a like an ego thing or like a capitalism thing where it's like i want to be the most value i want the most valuable knowledge of music which is embedded in this in this world of capital and culture and relationships Mm -hmm. as opposed to the like formal aesthetic, just in your face experience of like hearing a song. Mm -hmm. I do want to like make the disclaimer or point that like you can't actually separate these things. Right. Right. Um, And that, and that it's very, the process is very unconscious of like how you understand how you experience like cultural reference or whatever. Like mm-hmm. you don't know, you might not know, you might not be aware of how deep your sort of well of experience goes. And that's true of life, right? Like yeah, your, for sure. your whole experiences are just embedded in your body and like you don't have an episodic memory of every little thing, but mm-hmm. but you are the product of every little thing that ever happened to you. And so in, in that way, like it's all present. Yeah. Um, well, because I was going to, I was going to ask like I, I'm I'm fascinated by the idea of what post-capitalist music would sound like. To some extent, there's like all music starts out that way because the idea is you play the song because you because it makes you feel things and you want to write it. And the first time a song gets made, not all songs, but I'm I mean like the first time someone writes sits down to write a song to themselves, for themselves. That's not you know that's not that's not technically capitalism. But once you start like polishing a thing for people to consume, like how. And I don't think I don't think we have an answer. I, I, I don't have an answer and I can't think of a, a way to get to one. But like how one would get to like a post-capitalist consumption of music and, and what that would even sound like. I mean, I th- yeah, I mean, you think you have to like look. I mean, I don't know if that's like an answerable question, right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't know what the music in- instruments of the future are going to sound like right quantum synthesizers or whatever um no but <laughs> predicts uh, the audience what the audience wants to hear before they know they want to hear it right well that's right that's what that's what you're talking about <laughs> kind of right uh but i mean i feel like you just look to pre or like not like there's there's def there are forms of music that exist outside capitalism right like i would say most music exists outside capitalism and there are lots of subcultures where that is the point right right i mean like you know hardcore punk is like it's particularly like diy or like you know straight edge back in the day or whatever Mm -hmm. explicitly is like we're going to create a communal non-capitalistic space like Mm -hmm. you know 
Fugazi never sold any t-shirts. Like it was not about that. Right. Or a lot of, I feel like I don't see this as much often, but I feel like in DC for a long time too. And just in my community, there was a lot of just like getting together and like playing folk music on the porch or whatever. Like that's not about, that's purely just about like getting together with your friends and like having a nice time. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's not, yeah, Yeah. that's not, you know, so there's, there's, there's places where you're free of that. And, and, and really the capitalism thing is like, that's pop music, right? Like yeah. even classical music or like Louis Weeks would be mad about me calling it classic art music or concert music exists in an ecosystem of nonprofit, like because like for the sake of art mm-hmm. patronage and support. Right. So, yeah. so I don't, you know, I wouldn't want to, I, I wouldn't want to say, I wouldn't want to claim that all music now is, tainted by capitalism and also right there's places in the world where music is way more about community sure and structuring the ritual life of a community right mm-hmm. uh or look at like the way that music and like song was used at standing rock like sure. that's not capitalistic right no um, i mean i think just to, and like you're 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 100% right and i i think the what what i was thinking about i was th- i was thinking about the term music incorrectly because when i said music what i meant was music consumerism like like how when i when i said music what i was thinking was like the structure of radio and spotify and like mm-hmm. all of like and how how music is presented to be consumed in that way, like in, in that structure. Um, but I mean, like, yeah, it, it, it's entirely unfair to, to classify even, even a majority of music that way, just because I mean, churches in America, like they're sure. Like yeah, exactly. music, music is a part of everyday life for every tons Sunday. Of people. The, uh, every Sunday there's a, a, a raucous good time at the soul saving station right next to my apartment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like there's a, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously my thinking recently has been very focused on like the capitalistic structure mm-hmm. of pop music because yeah. like I am interfacing with it in sure. a way that I like, like to be clear, like any criticisms that I've leveled in terms of like being crass about looking at pop music from like a mercenary perspective, like mm. are directed at myself. <laughs> like I, I, I'm questioning this whole, the whole enterprise yeah. as much as I'm pursuing it. Mm-hmm. I'm probably getting the worst of both worlds because of it, oh. you know? Yeah. But you know, that's just me. But um, <laughs> I think to answer your question, I think we have some precedents for what you're talking about mm-hmm. in the form of like file sharing, right? Like mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The, the explosion of Napster, like when, it suddenly became possible to get any music ev- anywhere and to share any music anywhere, right? It it happened and everyone was super into it. Yeah. Um. And then when that became like a thing you had to do underground, then you had torrents and like communities like what.cd, which were you ever, did you ever have a membership to what.cd? No. It was a fascinating thing. It's a, it's a, what would you call it? It's a private torrent network. Sure. I got it in, invitation to it. it was invitation only i got an invitation to it like mm-hmm. must have been 2006 or something sure and and and, the, and what the membership was like because you had access to a vast library of torrents mm-hmm. of music that people had uploaded and software they didn't do movies but they did software and there were a lot of rules they were really they were really concerned with quality control so first mm-hmm. of all that they were very particular about making sure that 
music was ripped from CDs correctly and in formats and in high quality formats mm-hmm. um, and available in all these different formats. Like this is how I learned like what variable bitrate was in an MP3 and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So that's one thing that were really that was really paramount to this community. The second thing was that they had very strict rules in terms of your upload to download download ratio. Mm-hmm. So you had to seed, you had to provide, you had to keep the network alive. You had to like make your files available. Or you could like get a big chunk of a uh, upload kudos, right? If you were responsible for uploading an album, sure. right? And you would get different points for the like quality that mm-hmm. you know, the differing levels of quality. Yeah. Um and they were you know, they had a whole technical structure to back it. background technical yeah. technical structure to enforce these rules mm-hmm. uh to maintain the like quality of this community mm-hmm. and it was totally volunteer run like people donated and stuff but it was just like it was it was kind of utopian right in a way it was like we're gonna make all the music free but it's not just like music free do whatever you want like music's free and we have a ton of respect for the sharing of it and for the quality of it right and so that you know, maybe that's one way, right? Well, and I, 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 I had totally forgotten about SoundCloud and Bandcamp and all there. Like, I, you know, there are so many powerful resources for doing that in a way that is outside of sort of the the Spotify, iTunes, you know, Amazon strictly capitalized music structure, right? Um, that allows for people to share the things they create in the world, in part for the sake of sharing, but also to say, like, here's the thing, and if you think it's valuable we can make more of it if you help. Right. Well, that also raises the question of the, like the sort of Kickstarter approach, Mm -hmm. which I don't know. That's just, it's distasteful to me in some way, which is not rational, but it's like, I would rather, I mean, again, it's almost like, it's just like an ego thing. Like I would rather have the like personal ego boost of being like, my music is economically viable and I don't have to ask anyone for help. Instead of, but I think, I mean, and and so, and when, when I was talking to Sebastian Johnson a little bit, I, we talked a little bit about like the, the guaranteed income and I feel like things like just to sort of hop off things like Kickstarter or SoundCloud or like podcast, uh, like fundraising networks and that sort of thing are, I think ways in which these pseudo, the, like these, these different subcultures are acclimating everybody to that kind of guaranteed income it's like okay cool so you can like we start with kickstarters where you just donate and and like you give like you know five dollars ten dollars fifteen dollars and then that transitions into like okay your tax bill is an extra 150 dollars this year and that helps to create a state of guaranteed income for you know that, that that helps to create a guaranteed income structure for x number of people so like that that that's as we as we begin to acclimate to the small the small fund donation culture is a way of helping to acclimate us at least the, the people who have money and want to be in, involved in those communities to then eventually being able to say okay cool instead of me giving the equivalent of sixty dollars a month to all of these different things that I want to support I'll just pay that at the end of the year and people will just be able to make like do make what they want to make while subsisting but I don't want the government to decide what kind of music I is made but that's the point like but that's <laughs> you know, the, like, like but the whole point is that they like if you create a structure so that everyone has this baseline of like you're gonna have a place to live you're gonna have food 
you're like you're gonna have access to transportation like you will have the fundamental like the and, and and education and 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 utilities like when you have that fundamental structure in place i can make whatever music i want so long as i like i can make whatever music i want so long as i'm happy with where i like so long as i i can i'm comfortable with where i'm at and if i want to you know, the, or or that guaranteed income just gives me the space to say, okay, I'm only going to work X um, to to get to a certain level, a certain level of of social comfort that I feel like I need to have to produce the art that I want to make. Right. I don't know. I don't know what it's about. Right. I don't know if it's about just hustle. Like right. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you get yourself out there as much as you possibly can, then like you're going to get enough back no matter what. Mm-hmm. Or is it really right? is the poptimist right that there's some correlation between like quality? Uh, maybe that's a mischaracterization, but right. Does popularity somehow track with quality in some way? Sometimes, but like not always. Sometimes it seems to have an inverse relationship. Sure. Um, right. I mean, like the ba- the basic fact is like every people can already make whatever kind of music they want. Sure. Right? It's just a question of, can you do it and survive? Can, right. Can you do it? and have that be the only thing you do, right? Mm -hmm. Can you be a, scare quotes, professional musician if you make your own thing, right? That's our show. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find out more about Zach at applyingtoeverything.xyz slash guests or at humblefire.band. Humblefire recently released three singles from their upcoming album Builder out July 28th the most recent of which was featured on npr.org. You can pre-order Builder at humblefire.band and check out the music videos for Builder and Taliesin there. Yours truly produced and edited the Taliesin video. It's pretty cool. Catch Humblefire live this August. August 8th at the Rock and Roll Hotel in DC, August 12th at Hey Baby Cat Farm in Brooklyn, New York, and August 14th at Mercury Lounge in Manhattan, New York. More info at humblefire.band and at applyingtoeverything.xyz slash guests. You can find out more about the show at applyingtoeverything.xyz or on iTunes and Google Play, where you can subscribe, rate, and review the show. Thanks to Humble Fire for the use of our theme song, Mount St. Misery, off of The Great Resolve, available on iTunes, Spotify, and at humblefire.band. I'd also like to thank Chiara Scarcella for designing our logo. Tune in next week for a conversation with Lizzie Albert about being a character on stage and in life, how the audience performs in theater, and what plays and roles tell us about ourselves. Talk to you then.